0: This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series. We are talking to artist Tara Gilby about her unique photography techniques. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, curator Danny Lacey talks to artist Tara Gilby, who has a multidisciplinary approach to art making that incorporates solograph and pinhole photography techniques. Her work will be displayed in MPRG's upcoming exhibition, Surreal Landscapes, as well as an online exhibition of her works resulting from her time spent at the Police Point Artist in Residency on the Mornington Peninsula in 2018 and 2019. Discover more about Tara's background as a health professional and how this has fostered ideas around power and forensics, and ideas around the body and how we speak about illness and negotiate vulnerability.
1: Thanks for joining us today, Tara.
2: Thank you for having me from
1: afar. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, you're joining us from the Castlemaine Botanical Gardens, which uh, is, uh, I think, a first for one of our podcast recordings. But this very strange time that we're in calls for some unique measures to put in place to be able to speak to artists from yeah across the state and across the world. So um, thanks for joining us and yeah really looking forward to chatting today. I want to start by asking you, I guess, about you growing up and were you creative growing up and what inspired you to become an artist? I grew up in the
2: suburbs and um, my parents came from farming rural background and then came to the city so I just grew up in that urban estate that was sort of growing on the edges of Essendon and then but we travel around Australia a lot so we did the Leyland brothers sort of adventures with the caravan and friends and so we're a bit free range we're free range on the farm we're free range out traveling and so I had quite an expanded backyard I think as a kid which was really lovely um but no one was particularly creatively bent in my family and I was just a big daydreamer and I just imagined everything. <laughs> Anything was possible. And I used to, you know, like I used to get flax grass and weave it and imagine that I was sort of making my own little baskets for things and my Dad got a um, big sort of box that he let us um, use as a cubby house it's like one of those big packing crates made out of ply and that was our cubby house in the backyard and I used to pick plant life and sort of make my own apothecary and perfumes and talcum powder mixes and so I think I had a kind of watchy, crafty we were very crafty in our family did lots of sewing and knitting and things like that but my mum did this painting when she was in teacher training and it was of a sort of wave hitting a rock and I always thought it was really fascinating, so I wanted to replicate it and try and get something as real as, as she did. She painted in oils so and was quite proficient, but I obviously couldn't do it, and no one really wanted to teach me. So I, <laughs> I had to wait until later <laughs> to find out whether I actually did have any artistic skill.
1: Yeah, and I guess starting out, what were some of the sort of bigger influences on your early career?
2: So, I did art at high school and I had a really good art teacher. I think they make or break some of that sort of aspiration. She was great. She just let me free range in the art room at lunchtime and the work I made was terrible. It's shocking. Um, and then I went and did art. Oh, I think I did figure drawing, but I actually went and Trained as a nurse in a hospital, and um, it was a sort of practical choice. So I could leave home, I got paid to train at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, but I didn't really forget that sort of aspiration of wanting to make. So I came back to it and went to a place called Footscray Tafe, which is now Victoria University. But I think this is one of the things that sort of is still around, but not to the same degree, is that a lot of practicing artists were teaching at TAFE, so I had um, John Campbell and Stellark and some really great teachers, and I was doing this just after I finished my nurse training, so I had friends that were maybe interested in the arts, but um, I still didn't have a collective of people around me, so I think it was really the practicing artists in that TAFE that were really informative and encouraging, and also right in the middle of their practice so they were really quite generous mentors which was a great thing
1: yeah well that Um, that can make a big difference can't it to a a younger artist starting out to have that support and the mentorship but also um people to look up to i guess and then to see how they've paved the way to a certain degree or what they're doing
2: yeah and just some sort of encouragement like Stellark was really big on encouraging you to use a journal, which I still do to this day. And John Campbell, would I'd just come up with all these ideas and go, yeah, yeah, just do it. You know, it was like, get it, get it down there, get it, get it happening. And um, really, it was actually good to do that before going to VCA, because I wasn't that confident, I had no background and I was sort of still learning my way a bit. So it was a really good time to s- sort of try out ideas and get some sort of progression. Yeah.
1: And you've been teaching photography at Deakin Uni for the last three years. How's that experience been? Shoe on the other foot.
2: I love the idea that I can be a mentor now, and but also it's a great opportunity. You see students at the start, and then you see them find their voice in the subject you're teaching them, and or they might already have it, or they might need to understand a little bit about the subject so they can find their voice and it's great just that small transition through one subject to watch them evolve and either take flight or it's not necessarily their thing i mean you can recognize that by the end but a lot of students who really grasp sometimes they might just grasp a little bit about contemporary photography if it's not Think it's something they're going to go on with forever it's something they sort of get to understand a little bit more
1: expansively so yeah I love it I yeah, mm-hmm. love it yeah that's great now getting to the hard-hitting questions now I was just wanting to know how the current situation I guess with this um COVID-19 pandemic has affected your creative practice over the last or for this year basically and going forward how has that impacted you Well, on a professional
2: level, there's obviously going to be a real reduction in university opportunities, and so that as a career path is probably, you know, alongside a lot of others, is questionable. And then I'm not showing commercially, so I'm not aware of the impacts there. But on a personal level, I always... I'm always daydreaming and thinking about ideas and stuff like that. And at the moment, I'm really consolidating. So I was commuting a lot to Melbourne and to be stationary actually gives me a chance to really get in and go through the archive and clear out and also find those points of ideas, the kernel, and uh, start working back to those And sometimes I find an idea will sit for a long time until it gets almost like an itch that I've got to scratch. So I think I've got one cooking at the moment that's a bit like that. So I'm waiting till I've got that energy. But I work with the seasons a little bit too. I find that winter is a good time to be introspective anyway. I do miss going to the openings. (laughs) I miss sort of talking to artists. But um, because I live regionally, I can still see some art. Just went to the Bingo Art
1: Gallery the other day. And it was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Sometimes well, I guess... My Melbourne brothers and sisters that are stuck inside, like yourself. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, you, you can move out. You're
1: outside a little bit, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, a little bit can um, yeah. can go for a, a bit of exercise and get some fresh air, which is important. Yeah. It's probably a good segue, actually, to um, talk about your beautiful and haunting work that the NPRG is going to present in an online exhibition and also in our forthcoming exhibition, Surreal Landscapes, next year, which is about the old quarantine site down at Point Nepean. There seems to be just an amazing funneling of that idea uh, to with, I guess, everyone being a little bit in quarantine over the last three or four months. Do you want to talk about this series of works and how that developed and Uh, You've been working on this series for a number of years as well. Yeah, so
2: the idea actually started at the quarantine station in Manly. There's these inscriptions in the rocks there that are um, from the 1880s. And I had done some work previously with graffiti and writing and footage and inscriptions. So I was sort of drawn to them. And then the site itself was captivating because of my background in health and the idea of For a long time I've been interested in power and forensics and the way that we form ideas around the body based on sort of the notions of people like Foucault and how we govern the body, how we also identify illness, how we speak about illness. Recently I was reading a a synopsis of um, Susan Sontag's book Illness is Not a Metaphor and I think these sort of Writings and thinking will become current again as we see people negotiate illness and negotiate um, vulnerability. But it's also, these sites are kind of historic and quite metaphoric to the way we contain safety and borders and with the history of migration and the way that we allow or don't allow passage. So I was drawn to all those complex, large, Ideas, but in the space itself, it's never going to speak about that and it's not going to even illustrate or represent that, especially not in an empty historic building. So I really enjoyed the opportunity to visit and revisit the space and figure out what material might actually work best to um, explore it. I felt there was these doubling... uh, I was taking photos digitally and there was this doubling where you'd see inside and outside the buildings because they're so vacant and so you get this sort of internal and external but very absent spaces. And I'd sort of been talking about the material of pinholes and cellography with an artist, Dan Armstrong, who was working at Deakin. And I thought that was the perfect material to employ because it's contained and it holds the space and it weathers with the space and it actually becomes a field recording so a device that actually takes a temporal registration rather than a uh, necessarily I mean, it uses the photographic process but it seems to also allow a little bit more of the material of time to come into play in the work
1: hmm and I guess the um, Police Point Artist-in-Residence that you spent time at was of particular residence down there. How did that place make you feel and I guess how did it shape and frame the work that you made?
2: It's a great space because it's on that border of um, Sorrento and the end of the peninsula where it's quite a chaotic amount of people eat up at Christmas time and I I think I started there first in winter and then I had a summer and then I went back for winter so the summer really shocked me because of the amount of people because in winter it's very quiet and there's a lot of solitude and I felt like it was a very private place there's um, you told me about that private beach and there's this sort of sense of secrecy and when the tourists aren't there and it's not visiting it's quite haunting but You know, you don't know whether that's your own imagination or or the space itself, but it does feel quite enchanting and dark and moody. There's a lot of movement of light that captures uh, across the landscape and the water that's quite different to a back beach or something like that. The stillness of the bay is quite beautiful. But um, I had feedback recently when someone was looking at one of my solographs. They said that they felt they were like a private mysterious sort of knowing and I felt that was a really lovely sort of encapsulation of how I sort of secreted myself around there. I was often walking when no one else was around and was taking time to sort of find the sites that I wanted to capture.
1: Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about how you went about all the process of engaging with the landscape in terms of setting up the actual materials to record those images?
2: Yeah, so some people know what a solograph is, but a lot, even people who work in photography, don't. And then pinhole—they're both similar, but a different process. So pinhole is where you use a paper. I do paper negative, so I put the actual photographic paper in a tin with a pinhole, and then I um, calibrate that exposure according to a lot of intuition and luck, and sometimes not and some of the tests that i've done so i open up the pinhole for a period of time the light comes in and then exposes what happens in the pinhole process is it's a long exposure so it's very similar to if you open up a camera and clouds go past or people go past they won't be registered so with the pinhole what it does is the light comes in and because it's a long exposure there's this absencing that occurs where if a person walks past or a duck or a bird or a cloud they all become kind of erased or slightly you know they become ghosted and so it's only the static that registers and so this is a kind of interesting way to capture the landscape where things like trees and the buildings are captured, but then you'll get this movement that ghosts itself around there and sort of this absencing. And so I was looking at the historic buildings, but they seemed almost like quite characterful. So I wanted to go into the landscape and there was really... The Munna trees are very and the tea trees are very weathered and they're very body-like so i was quite drawn to them and i started taking some works on the trees and within the trees to sort of capture their weathered nature and they were quite evocative so you have these intimate sort of scenes and then these more broad up um, landscapes and with pinhole you get this depth of field that's quite strong because of the pinhole being quite small and then with the solograph they're actually It's the photographic paper again, but the photographic paper is in the canister for a period of time and it never gets put into chemicals to be developed. It only exists as the paper and its oxidisation process. So the light comes into the space and this is where you get this really lovely sense of containment because the camera, once it's located and strapped to a tree or a... um, or that's going to hold it statically. Once it's located, it becomes then um, a contained space that absorbs light, and over that time it registers the movement of light, which is generally most market in the sunrise and falling but then you also get these things like i think there's some registration of torch lights or car lights or maybe boat lights on the water Um, so you get these abstractions but only if they're either quite strong or they've been there regularly over time because everything comes and goes on that piece of paper as well and what you also get on the paper is the marks of weather and all the sort of slaters that might get in. There was funny little bugs in one tin that had got in a little fun time. And so I suppose you get, also you get, you know, maybe mosquitoes or things. So the surface takes on some of the texture of the space.
1: Mm. And I guess you get a really unique perspective of the landscape with that, form of mark making in a way because you get this amazing visual distortion over time so with that layering of car lights you get this accumulation of presence i guess um how long did you keep the canisters set up for
2: uh so i did six months and 12 months i originally did a test i remember i brought one into you and we, we pulled it out and it didn't work but that was only for a short period of time and So I also refined, I went back and asked people a little bit more about it. So six months, and then I think the 12-month ones, I mean, I lost a few. I had one right on a cliff face, and someone left their beer cans next to it and (laughs) took it down and thought it might have been something interesting, maybe a message in a bowl, I don't know. And then some other ones that you could see them, but they seemed to stay there, um, was sitting sort of on poles on the cliff face. And then I think Park Victoria pulled down a fence and I lost one there. The one that worked really beautifully was that one that's, um, it almost looks like starry sky. So, what you do when you pull it out of the canister, you put it on a flatbed scanner and if you scan it for too long, the light of the scanner can affect it, so it's kind of an interesting process. So, you scan it and um, I've put them back in the tin to see whether they last in the dark and then I might pull them out again and scan them, but the one that sort of looks like a starry scape, it's actually looking up. I didn't think it would work because I put it on an angle on a tree branch. And so it's looking up at the sort of trees and then it's capturing the sun passing over the sky. So there's lots of fine lines. And then everything that's on the surface has obviously come in the can and sort of destroyed the paper to some degree, but not too much. So I really think that sort of weathering is really evident on that work, but it actually gives it this landscape that's not actually the photograph, it's just the time and the material what's the weather that's come in there
1: mm-hmm, the texture of the material
2: yeah. yeah yeah so I mean you can leave a solograph but obviously you have an arc of sun for 12 months that changes and so that's why you generally will do it for six or 12 months you get more or less in those images depending on how long you leave it.
1: I guess through that whole process there was a level of experimentation I guess with what the outcomes would be how did the end result sort of feel to you did was it something that you're expecting that those images to look like that or were there any changes or surprises? I think the
2: works that worked best were the ones that didn't describe every. well they can't they're very sort of muddy images they're very misty or milky images but the ones that actually had things like the paperwork in them or the sort of weathering seem to just get another layer almost like a watercolor which I quite liked so that was like another drawing on top or a sort of fixture on top of the actual registration of light so and I saw that people were quite drawn to those works as well i think it was really interesting like i'm thinking of extending it now to a space where water flows and seeing whether you can register the flow of water because you know in country spaces how um you have your summer creeks and they dry up and then they become winter creeks and water flows i'm interested in how that might translate but it's a long process Mm -hmm. like archaeology or something like that I wrote field notes too and I spoke to a person who works in um, in that sort of area about these field notes and anthropology and this idea of um, in writing the field notes I was really recording my own body in that space so that was a transcription for myself I'm not sure that that comes through the audience but I am really interested that people do Because they don't describe themselves implicitly, people start to draw their own conclusions. And I think that's really important in my work, that I I like there to be a questioning when people look at the work so that they're trying to draw their own conclusions, not be told what the fabric of
1: the work is Mm. straight away. Yeah, Yeah. I think with the images, there's an abstractness to them, but there's also this sort of space where you can put your own sort of ideas into them as well. There's enough Mm. space for that to happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. With that space, I think that that's what you need when places are loaded with history. I mean, the quarantine station has early colonial history as well involved. It has all of the displacement of First Nations people. Then it has the ecological use of, what was it, the lime? They took away a lot of the coastline for lime. So it's all really interesting layers of history in there, but you can't discuss all of that in an artwork
1: hmm yeah no it's been great to see the progression of that project and to see the outcome as well the images are really stunning it's um a beautiful and unique perspective to actually see sort of representations of the mornington peninsula in such a way um so i think it's um yeah credit to how you've spent so much time crafting that outcome yeah i
2: think it might be one of the types of art making that might be Sometimes lost is that time that it takes sometimes to craft work in situ and in in places. And hopefully with this COVID, maybe that opportunity will arrive again where people can take longer time to um, sense their work in progress. Mm, Yeah. I think that some artists have actually said to me that they feel a slight relief, that the pace is... Gone down not sure
1: too. Yeah, well, I've got one final question which uh, we ask all of um, our guests, and that is what advice would you give to artists just starting out in their career? Don't
2: be afraid to find a mentor. I was going to offer this advice in another conversation or something, but the people that I reached out to early on when I finished art school, but, you know, there's mentors in art school, but it's the people who show up because they're interested in you and your ideas. They're amazingly valuable, and whether it's a curator that comes to visit you in your studio, and don't be afraid, I think, for young people to invite people into their studio, because I never had a studio, actually, that I could invite people into. They were a bit messy, but I reached out um, when I was doing this project as an artist-in-residence at the hospital I trained at, so the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and I, I ran up a bunch of artists, people like Patricia Piccinini, and and she was open to the idea about doing something else, and then I spoke to Lauren Berkowitz, and we ended up forming a partnership that was so pivotal for me at that time, because she listened and took care of what I was trying to realise and showed me so much. And never wavered in her generosity. And I think that a lot of artists remember and recall what it's like to start out and feel quite privileged to be asked to, you know, contribute to someone else's journey. And so I would totally recommend that young people identify someone that they feel a connection with their work and contact them and see whether there's a reciprocal relationship there. That would be my advice look for mentors along the way and. Um, it's so difficult to have those really strong conversations in, in uh, when you're exhibiting. Often you get your work up and then people come, but invite people to come along when you can have a conversation after the opening or in your studio. If you don't have a studio, if you're a photographer, then perhaps invite someone to come to your show when you're sitting it and it's quiet because the simple things that people say in when your work is evolving can be really quite
1: encouraging and you need to hear those things i think Mm, great advice well thanks so much for joining me today and having a bit of a chat about your project that we've got online at the MPIG website and yeah look forward to working with you in the future as well thank you danny
0: thanks for listening to our conversation series mornington peninsula regional gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by mornington peninsula shire and other partners Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. And remember to subscribe to the podcast so you hear the next episode.